All right, I hope you got a new handout. Um, the first one was too faint to photocopy properly, so it was hard to read. Uh, this is largely the same handout as I gave out last week, but there are some additions, uh, particularly in the back, uh, contrasting and a comparison between uh, sovereign, God's sovereignty and human free will. That was one of the questions that was raised in our end of our class last week. So basically, just to do a very quick review, on your first page, we have a left column that would uh, present the tenets of Calvinism and the right-hand column, the tenets of Arminianism. And uh, the acronym for Calvinism is TULIP, uh, standing for total depravity. These are highlighted in yellow. Unconditional election, uh, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So that is TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. And then on the Arminian side, it's uh, they're listed for you as well. Largely, they are in um, uh, contradiction or opposition to uh, the Calvinistic points. In other words, the two aren't bedfellows. Calvinism and Arminianism are not bedfellows. Uh, they don't mix and match. Um, Arminianism believes in a partial depravity, that Adam and Eve were not fallen into a state of sin and sin nature, but they were polluted, still capable of making positive choice. Uh, conditional election for the Armenian is that God looks down the corridor of time, knows the future, and sees that Sally Doe will believe on Christ, so therefore God decides to elect Sally Doe to salvation. I put forward last week that I see that being uh, in error because God is not a reactive God, he is a proactive God. And uh, he does not elect based on our first initiation, he elects based on his own sovereign will and purpose. Another way of saying that is that the Calvinist believes in divine sovereignty, whereas the Arminian believes in human sovereignty. Uh, the Calvinist believes in God being the initiator of all things, and the Arminian says that um, there's a human sovereignty and uh, versus a divine sovereignty. And so um, these are the fundamental things that are different. In the bottom corner of the front page is um, an acronym for uh, Arminians. It's not as memorable. It just doesn't work out to be as memorable. F-C-U-R-F. F for free will. C for conditional election. U for unlimited atonement. And R for resistible grace. Uh, falling from grace. So to put that into layman's terms, the person of the Arminian persuasion uh, believes that they uh, freely choose God and God is responsive to their choosing even to the point of election. Uh, they believe that um, election is conditional as I've taught you just a moment ago. The Arminian believes that God looks down to the future, sees who will choose Christ, and then therefore God chooses them. The uh, Arminian U believes in an unlimited atonement, believes that uh, Christ died uh, for all, but not all uh, will be saved. And then R under Arminian is for resistible grace. The, the uh, Arminian believes that it's possible for us to resist God's grace, that we can, in effect, override any will that God might have relative to our salvation. And F, uh, Arminians believe that you can fall from grace, that you can lose your salvation, that you can uh, be given salvation as a gift based upon your free will exercise of trusting Christ as sa Savior, but then you can lose it. And so the Arminian believes that our security in God's salvation is based on our grip 
on God, whereas the Calvinist says, no, our security is based on God's grip on us. And so, as, as I say, they're not bedfellows. Uh, you can be a true Christian and be an Arminian. Uh, you can be a true Christian and be a Calvinist, but you can't be both a Calvinist and an Arminian. You can't. It's, it does, they, don't, they don't line up. They don't... Um, I don't believe you can be partially Calvinistic. I think all five of those link together, logically. Um, but do you have an example, Perry, what you're wondering? Or just generally speaking? Generally speaking, but yeah, particularly with um, the, the last one. The, the security. Yes. Or if um, the term was used more than once in Brian's teaching. Three-point Calvinist, four-point Calvinist. So there are a lot of teachers out there or, or theologians that do hold the view that you can be one. Yes. Well, less than five. Yes. And um, yes, um, I don't think if you look at the tenets of Calvinism, the five, the tulip that it's logical to say you could be a three-point Calvinist or a four-point Calvinist. To me, it's a package, uh, logically and theologically. But uh, R.C. Sproul, who is an a author and a seminary professor, he says that Calvinists have a name for four-point Calvinists. It's called Arminian. <laughs> um, but, and that's not said derogatorily. That's not said pejoratively. That's just said... Logically, um, could you be, could you genuinely be saved and yet believe you could lose your salvation? Sure, you could. And that's a, a very sad. Well, if, if they, there are some scriptures I have in your packet that an Arminian would look to to say that the Bible teaches you can lose your salvation. So to the Arminian who looks to those passages and say they argue for a, the potential loss of salvation, I don't know that that's doubt. I think it's error, but I don't think it's doubt. Um, so here's what it's like. Um, if, you, if you sign a contract with a business to employ you, and the contract says you are employed at that business until your death. You're secure, right? But you could live every day at work fearing you'll lose your job. The fear of losing your job doesn't change the fact you are, in fact, secure. So the Christian who, who trusts Christ alone for salvation is secure, but they may not know they're secure or believe they're secure. And that really changes how you live your life. Now, the Arminian would say that if you believe that you're secure in your salvation as a Calvinist, it gives license to high-handed sinning. Well, I suppose, I suppose that's possible, but that's not necessarily the outflow of that. Um, Galatians is written to argue strongly against abusing God's grace. Um, but I think the bigger issue on that is the precious people I know who are Arminian who come to me uh, more than once saying they feel, feel they've lost their salvation. So in tenderness and love as the pastor, I say, why do you think that? And then they have a dirty dozen of sins that they think are more serious about losing your salvation than others. I say, where is that in Scripture, that that particular sin is, 
is, is more severe about losing your salvation than gossip or envy or coveting or whatever. And they don't really have an answer. And so the question you have to gently ask an Arminian is, if you think you can lose your salvation, what sins cause you to lose it? They don't say anything because the Bible doesn't say which sins cause it because the Bible doesn't teach you can lose it. The other question I ask in love of an Arminian who believes, let's say they believe that adultery causes you to lose your salvation. Adultery is a serious sin. It's a breaking of a marital vow and covenant. But it's forgivable. Christ died for that sin. So let's say this person believes that adultery is a cause to lose your salvation. Well, then you need to ask, is that in your head or in a bed? Jesus said if it's in your head, it's adultery. Jesus said all adultery in a bed starts in your head. Then you have to ask, okay, they say it was in a bed. Then you say, how long do you have to be in that state of adultery for you to lose your salvation? A week? A month? A year? Ten years? Scriptures don't answer that. Because Jesus used the metaphor, as I said last week, of birth. He, he gave us the metaphor of, at all the metaphors at his disposal, he gave us the metaphor of birth in John 3. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So I told you our children are adopted, Joanna and JD, from birth. And we've told them from the youngest of ages that they are. He chose them. And um, if they sin as believers, they both confess faith in Christ. Joanna, 22 in Spain this summer, JD, 17 in the room next door. <laughs> uh, if they started willy-nilly, high-handedly sinning, um, and then came back to say they were sorry to me as their dad and to their mom, um, and said, we'd like to become Elliot's again, we'd say, why? Because they might say, because we feel we've lost our standing in your family. They didn't lose their standing in the Elliott family. They lost their fellowship uh, with the family. They lost their congruence with our faith system. They lost our, uh, our con their congruence with our values as a family. So if that would be the case, I would say, well, when you were involved in that lifestyle, that is sin. And if you're saying to God and to me that you're sorry and you want to come back to the Bible's way of living, welcome back, but I don't need to make you an Elliott again. That can't actually be done. You know, there's no court process to make someone a Elliot again. Yes? I believe uh, also that all sin is forgivable once you're saved, but in the Bible there is one sin that sticks out to me that says unforgivable is uh, suicide. Well, that's a, that's a thought, but I don't think that is accurate. Um, suicide is is a sin to be sure because God gives life and only God should take life and God's giving of life is a preordained length of time according to first or rather to Psalm 139 our days are written before we even have one of them in God's book so suicide is definitely sin but I don't see that as an unpardonable sin there's one unpardonable sin in scripture when the Pharisees saw Jesus doing miracles right in front of them and said man that's power but they said to discredit Jesus that is demonic power, the power of Beelzebub. Jesus said, you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, which is unforgivable. But technically, that can't be repeated, because in 2015, Jesus is at the right hand of his Father in heaven. He's coming back, but right now he's at his Father's right hand. So if something happens by way of a miracle now, uh, you can't say, well, that's Jesus 
He's doing visibly, that's his miraculous power, but he does it by Beelzebub. That's not repeatable as an unpardonable sin because Jesus is at the right hand of God at this time. He's not on earth doing the miracles like he did when he was here. But there is one unpardonable sin by extension, which is dying, dying without Christ as Savior. That's unpardonable. There's no purgatory. There's no spiritual grandchildren. There's no uh, points for being religious. Salvation is by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works as anyone should boast. So if a person dies without confessing Christ as Lord and Savior, that's unpardonable. Everybody gets a five-minute eulogy. Uh, I've done hundreds of them over the years. I have five minutes to say something over a casket. If I can say over your casket that you trusted Christ alone for salvation, everything is fine for you forever. But if I can't say that in integrity and accuracy, then everything is not fine for you forever. So that's that's a good question. Um, and I do want this to be interactive. Yeah, Mark. That's right. Confused a little bit. From what I've been taught, is the unpardonable sin always happens. You're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian and then commit the unpardonable sin. You, you commit the unpardonable sin, grieving the Holy Spirit, which never makes you a Christian. So that would help, help me believe that, that some sin is not our choice. Like, we have free will over our sin, but limited free will, it seems like, because the sin of grieving the Holy Spirit would make us not a Christian. I understand where I'm going. Um, not really, but, but yeah, no, just not just. But let me just say this: that um, what, Jesus picked the metaphor of birth, and so he he did that with great intentionality because birth means you were dead before you were alive, right? Uh, birth means you had nothing to say about it. You had nothing to say about your conception. You had nothing to say about your birth. That's all done of God. And Jesus was saying that spiritual rebirth is done of God. He makes it possible for you and me to believe. So the unpardonable sin, maybe, maybe what I just, I don't mean to blow off your question, but if you start with the wrong premise of what the unpardonable sin is, you get more questions than answers. So the unpardonable sin is then historically to ascribe to Jesus power from Satan. So, by extension, we can't do that because Jesus isn't wandering around Nassau doing things. Beth? Yes, that's right. That is unpardonable. No purgatory, no second chance, no prayers for the dead, all of that. But let's, before we move off of uh, these questions to do with security, remember, let's not get lost in the trees here. The, the Calvinist says that because God authored your salvation, he will keep you safe. It's his grip on you that keeps you secure. The Arminian says, no, it's your grip on God that keeps you secure so you can lose your salvation. That's, that's just what we're talking about here. This is the difference. And um, if you go with me to John 10, Jesus is uh, teaching in John 10, uh, and then he says in verse 27 of John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you are resting in his finished work to be your remedy to sin and your way to heaven, you're a sheep, and I'm a sheep. 
I happen to be an under shepherd to the good shepherd, but as an under shepherd, I need the shepherding of the good shepherd as much as you do. We're sheep. And he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And then he says, Jesus says, I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. Well, that should be enough right there. When Jesus says, I give eternal life to them, and they shall not perish, picture it this way. Jesus, when you trust that Jesus would be your Savior, Jesus says, I give you eternal life. I give you my life as your life. It's yours. That should be enough. But graciously, Jesus taught more theology about salvation when he said in 28, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. So here's the deal. Jesus Christ's metaphorical, nail-pierced hand, uh, Basil is in that hand in Christ's grip, and Jesus says, Basil will never perish. Not anyone can break Jesus' grip on Basil, not even Basil. Basil can't bust out of this grip. You can't bust out of Christ's grip on you if you're truly saved. Why would you want to? Well, if you got carnal enough, long enough, and deluded enough, you could even want to, but you couldn't do it if you, even if you wanted to. So it goes on, but it's, there's double security here. Not just Jesus' hand, 29. My Father, watch up here. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Well, this is, this is uh, anthropomorphism, which is a figure of speech where uh, attributes of man... Kind are attributed to God to help us understand God, okay? So this is Jesus saying, if the Father had a hand, which he does on his spirit, but if the Father had a hand, he comes around Christ's hand, gripping you securely to be saved, and comes like this. You are doubly safe in salvation because of Jesus' grip on you and because of God the Father's grip on you. And then I love this. Watch this analogy, verse 30. And I and the Father... Or one. So watch my hands, watch my wrists, watch my elbows, watch my shoulders, watch my neck, and watch my head. Jesus and the Father are one. He's got a nail-scarred hand to hold you safe. God the Father puts you into Jesus' hand in the first place and grips you. You have double security. Now, that changes a lot. Because... The agent, the Holy, the agent the Father uses is the Holy Spirit. But Jesus was teaching this before the giving of the Holy Spirit. But the agency of that giving of the Father, of the elect to the Son, is the Holy Spirit who draws us to Christ. And in the Calvinistic belief, that drawing of the Spirit of God for the elect is irresistible. We have a choice to make, but we will make the choice. For the Arminian, uh, they believe that um, the drawing can be resisted, that a person can resist the drawing of God to salvation. And what scripture do they base that on? Their strongest scripture. Okay, let's go to page uh, four. They would, um, I'm just trying to pick one. 
generally speaking, before I get to a text, generally speaking, they would um, camp on, in their thinking, the foundational, seminal, core belief that people choosing is the most important. They would say things like, we're not robots. And the Calvinist doesn't say there is no free will, and we'll look at that hopefully if we have time today. But they would say that the fact that people aren't saved and they die unsaved, which, by the way, is not a biblical term. The Bible never says unsaved. The Bible says lost or, or found, right? But anyway, um, they would say, point to someone, great uncle Hector, who um, went to his death renouncing Christ, denying the Bible, and they would say, see there? Free will. Calvinists would say, once Uncle Hector draw his last breath, he wasn't elect. Because the Calvinist believes that the elect will respond to grace before they die. So, generally speaking, it's that the deal that they... The Arminian looks around and sees the same thing that the Calvinist sees. That there are people who die rejecting Christ. We both see the same thing. But we interpret what that means in a different way. You're with me? Yeah. So, um... John 3.16, I suppose, is, a, is a, a good one they would point to. God, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so the crux of that verse for this debate is, who is the whosoever? The Arminian would say, whosoever, planet Earth. The Calvinist would say, the elect. Through uh, the other texts on election, foreknowledge, predestination. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. Well, um, maybe what I should say, and this is not a cop out, Perry, maybe what I should say is that um, it is going to be impossible for us to fully reconcile free choice, and God's sovereignty this side of heaven. Um, the sheet I give you at page... Eleven. Page eleven. Um, this is a survey of Romans chapters nine through eleven. And basically... What I think is most helpful to us is if we look at the first blue box. You can see I didn't do well in art class in high school. Uh, I didn't color within the lines very well. But I did this on purpose because I wanted you to know that I personally researched this. I didn't go to the internet and spit out something that I don't buy. I, what I've given you in my own hand is what I believe from my heart. That's why I did it. So three truths that all have to be held together. It's like when you come out of the grocery store, if you don't tip a young man to take your groceries to your car, if you have three big grocery bags, you have to hold them all together or you lose a bag and you don't get your groceries home. So these are three truths that need to be bundled together. That the Bible teaches all three of these things. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility, and gospel duty. They have to go together. And so maybe what we ought to um, start with is to say the Bible presents divine sovereignty beside 
human responsibility, makes no explanation between the two, as we'll see in these chapters, but just lets them stand together. So in the mind of God, they must stand together. In my puny mind, I don't fully see how they stand together. It's an antinomy, like I taught you last week. Anti, no or against, namas, rule or law. So an antinomy is two things that seem to contradict to me or you that are non-contradictory to God. Statements that say only lions have manes, only lions have manes. Several places in a, in a book or whatever, you know only lions have manes, but then the statement says, whatever, whatever a cat has a mane goes to heaven or whatever. So that, that whosoever um, encompasses only the, the people that are elect according to Calvin. Yeah, I think, I think I, I follow that. That's a, I think they call it a syllogism in uh, debate. Um, but let's come back, and, and we're trying to get to you, Perry. I'm not trying to skirt what you asked, okay? Um, so look at Romans 10, uh, please. Romans 10, verse 14. And if you'd care to read a verse uh, out of that passage, just do so in a nice big voice so you can be recorded for those that will listen later. Romans 10, uh, 14 to start with. How then can they call on the one they have not believed on? Yes. And how can they believe in the one on whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone speaking to them? Fifteen. And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Sixteen. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed your message? Consequently, oh, sorry. Uh, 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of Christ, and the word of Christ comes from preachers who, and not just behind pulpits, but Christians who live their life where they work and live. And then verse 21, skipping down to 21. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient people. Now this is an antinomy, Perry. This is, this is an antinomy, that God is an evangelist. The one who is elected is an evangelist. And it says in 21, God stretches out his hand for people to come to him, but they are disobedient and obstinate. So it's a striking thing that, that human responsibility, divine sovereignty, and gospel duty are this package of three that go together. And what we're going to see as we cursively go through these chapters is the Bible never tries to harmonize sovereignty with human responsibility. They're just there together. There's no attempt by the scriptures to give us a slam-dunk explanation how they go together, but they do go together. But the Bible does give us a profound resolution at the end of 11, verses uh, 33 to 36. Someone like to read 33? Romans 11, 33. 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? 35. 
Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. I think what we're seeing here is the blue box. That the resolution of this tension between human responsibility and, and divine sovereignty, the fully understanding of that is not available to us at this time. It awaits eternity. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 seems to really apply here. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God is speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I don't really want a God that I can fully explain. He's not big enough, if I can. Twelve, or the next page. Yes. Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, I understand that persons like character and who that probably on social media that I want to say or have faith in Christ. And then my sister was a new of lupus. And so away with that faith and now spreads all this negative stuff. And then when you look at Mark chapter four where it says see goes into a person's life, it endures for a while when the cares of this world and the sickness and all of that hits, the person struggles and abandons them. So, the person who followed it on social media, get the idea that this is saved or not really saved or the lost. Well, um, it's true that a true Christian should uh, see the fruit of the Spirit being produced by the Spirit in his or her life. We should uh, have an appetite for the things that God values, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ, the Scriptures, um, prayer. Um, the truly born-again person should uh, be growing in grace and in the knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As far as you use a case point of Ted Turner, um, I don't know what to say about that. You know, God is judge. Um, it could be that uh, he'd never trusted Christ. He never knew the true gospel. There's so many twists and machinations of the gospel now that it's really, really something. You know, I won't spend a lot of time, but when I'm sharing Christ with someone and they're having a hard time figuring out what they should trust him for, I say, well, if you're homeless and I want to give you a steak dinner in Manhattan uh, for you and your wife, it's on me. And then the day of the restaurant reservation, you phone me and say that I don't have a ride to Manhattan. Our car broke down. If I dial up a limo service and tell you I'm going to send a limo to your house or, or to the bridge you live under, I guess they're homeless. I'm going to send a limo to the bridge, and they're going to take you to the restaurant. I ask the person, have you trusted me for what I really ultimately wanted to give you? Well, they haven't. They've trusted me to get in a limo, but that wasn't what I ultimately wanted to give them. Now, they go to the restaurant, they sit down, they see the menu. At that point, have they really trusted me for the gift I wanted to give them? No. It's not until they both cut into their steaks and take the first bite 
they've trusted me for the gift I ultimately wanted to give them because once you bite that steak, it's not going back to the kitchen. And they have no money. Okay? Some people trust Jesus for limo rides. Happy family, health and strength, money, healing. Some people trust Jesus for limo rides. So what I first have found out in the Bahamas is uh, it's a very God-professing nation, but you have to ask, which God? And then if they name the name of Christ, you have to ask, which Christ? Tell me about your Christ. And if they start describing the Christ of the Bible, then we've got something. But if they start describing the Christ of their own imaginations and creation, they're lost. I leave that to I leave that to the Lord to judge. Um, there was a there was an evangelist in Canada years back. He was closely affiliated with Billy Graham, Charles Templeton. There was much fruit in Charles Templeton's preaching of the gospel. And at some point, he got to the point that he said God does not exist because of the problem of suffering in the world. He went to his grave believing that. Lee Strobel, who uh, wrote The Case for Christ, uh, Chicago Tribune journalist who was an atheist who came to faith in Christ, Lee Strobel, you may want to check out his books or his his videos, he went and uh, interviewed Charles Templeton uh, just months before Templeton died in Toronto, and he basically said, "I I deny God because there's suffering. And so, was he saved when he preached the gospel and God uh, brought people to salvation through his ministry? I don't know. I'd probably say no. But, you know, God can speak through a donkey. So, like, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. And a donkey, if it could speak the gospel, could see people be saved. Because the Spirit of God is working in the people hearing, right? So... Let's go to 1134. To me, 1134 really seals the deal that the Bible teaches both sovereignty and human responsibility. Uh, For who has known the mind of the Lord? And that's what we're struggling with here. Who fully knows the mind of God? I don't. None of us do. Because his ways are so much superior and higher than our ways. So it says... Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his, his counselor? Who can say to God, you know, I don't think it's entirely unfair you elected people before the foundation of the world. Or, I don't think that it's particularly fair that I can lose my salvation. We have no, we have no right to do that. As, uh, you can put it this way, God needs no help. There's no suggestion box in the back of our Bibles. Verse 35. Or who is first given to him that it might be paid back again to him? Who has given something to God first that God hasn't already first given to them? So if, if a person in church uh, this Sunday morning gives a $100 offering, can they say that I gave that to God before God gave it to me? When you cradle that little baby and bring that baby home from doctor's hospital, can you say that I gave to God so God gave me this baby? No. Who is given to God first that God is obliged or obligated to that person? Now, by the way, little point, side point, when you start to make God an ATM machine that some prosperity preachers do, that if you just have enough faith, he owes you a boat. 
or he owes you an affluent address, or he owes you kids with a college education. That's treating God like an ATM. Because the person who uses the ATM contributes to the ATM. I can, if I put my ATM card in Scotiabank, I can only hope to draw out what's already in there. And so no one gives to God that God would owe that person. And so in the blue box, you have no leverage with God, and neither do I. God owes us nothing. Not an explanation, not more information, not more clarity, not a defense of his actions or his choices. God does not owe any of us anything. And so we rest. We aren't fatalistic, pessimistic. We rest in what we do know about God from the word of God. That there is divine sovereignty, there is human responsibility, they live together in the Bible, and God says, the full explanation of this awaits a future time when you see me face to face. And so theology, which is at rest, ends up being doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's doxology, right? Doxology is praise and worship. So when we come to rest in who our God is based on what he teaches us in his word, then we can praise God. And that's how chapter 11 ends, right? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So this study probably has uh, unsettled some who haven't really thought about these issues before for whatever reasons. This study has probably confirmed in some minds uh, what you have come to believe previously. But whether we are stirred up and unsettled and have to study the Bible more or whether we are uh, confirmed in what we believe previously from God's word, rest in it because you need to rest in God. You need to rest in God, that he makes no mistakes, that he does all things well. And so theology, which is at rest, ends up being doxology. And Romans 9, 11, that teaches both human responsibility and divine sovereignty, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 present divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In fact, the strongest chapter in the whole Bible on divine sovereignty is chapter 9 of Romans. But right beside it, its next-door neighbor, is the strongest chapter in the Bible on human responsibility, chapter 10. So this tension doesn't bother God. And then, at the end of the section, chapters 9 through 11, it ends with sovereignty. It's like God begins with sovereignty in 9, begins in sovereignty with 9, ends with the sovereignty of God at the end of 11, and in between he presents human responsibility. And then go with me to um, Psalm 77. Psalm 77, and when someone read verse 19... Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, through your foot, though your footprints were not seen. Think about that. Um, the psalmist talking to God, the psalmist who has a big enough understanding of who God is, says to God, Thy ways, thy way was in the sea. 
and thy paths in the mighty waters. I go to Cabbage Beach, I was talking to Perry. Uh, there's a new family in the church, the Cabbage family. I don't know if you've met them, but they own a beach. And they're a very dysfunctional family, so we have to visit the Cabbages quite often. At least twice, twice or three times a week. I have never found enduring footprints on the sand bottom of Cabbage Beach. If someone, if we walk down to the point usually, or swim down to the point for exercise, when I walk to the point, when I come back, there are no footprints, ever. The psalmist is saying, God, you have a path, you have a plan, it involves divine sovereignty and human responsibility, but I can't track you and your footprints fully. And then in case we missed it, the parallel thought here is, and thy footprints may not be known. It's like, are there, are there footprints at the bottom of a mighty waterfall? Niagara Falls. If anybody ever could walk under there without being killed, and you could not, um, would their footprints last? Would you find their footprints? No, because the falls are so mighty, and the wave action is so constant. And so we can't, we can't shrink God down. Uh, to a size that we can just trace his footprints in our minds about everything. That's going to be told to us in heaven. And I'll just say this, maybe in closing before I ask, answer questions, if I can, I'll try. When the Arminian Christian and the Calvinistic Christian enter heaven, they're worshiping the same Christ. They're going to serve the same Christ in heaven. The difference is here and now. And um, I hope you've caught my tone, if, and if you haven't, I want to make sure you know my tone. I love believers who are uh, Arminian. I don't agree with their theology, but I love them. And I see them as my brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, part of why I have taught this with some passion is that I take my role as your as under-shepherd to Jesus for this flock, that I would give you the whole counsel of God, that I wouldn't dodge this because 30% of the class are Arminian or 70% of the class are Arminian, just dodge the topic. And I think it's really important. You know my heart. I love the lost who need Christ. I share my faith with everybody. It never occurs to me who is elect and who is non-elect. I let God show me eventually. Um, and I don't look down on anybody I'm pastoring who has a more Arminian understanding of the scriptures. But as your pastor who loves you, whose job is to minister the full counsel of God, when Brian said, could you come? I said, sure. And I'm glad to be here. And may I just remind you, before we go to questions, this all started in Ephesians 1, right? And so just like, just like uh, you can't accuse the church of conjuring up the term born again, I mean, Jesus used it first in John 3, we can't conjure up the allegation that election and predestination are a Calvinist creation because it all started in your class as you went through uh, the first verses of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love.
He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So that's why we got into the discussion, and I don't pretend to think that, that the discussion's over. This is a lifelong investigation, right? But be like Berean Christians. Examine the word for yourselves to see if what I'm teaching you is right or not. You should examine what every preacher teaches you to see if the Bible teaches that. Every, every one of you should be students of the Word of God. And, you know, I think if we're not students of the Word of God, it's not because we lack the Scriptures. We're not like the persecuted church that weep when they get one Bible for a house church and they tenderly rip it apart and staple the pages and Mark gets Ephesians for this week and Kim gets Exodus and Basil gets Ephesians and every one of you get one book of the Bible and you go to your home and you study that book of the Bible and you come back the next Lord's Day and you circulate the Bible. That's not our problem. The average American, I don't know what's for Bahamians, the average American owns seven Bibles. The problem is the average American doesn't study any of them. So the issue is not a lack of availability and accessibility to the Bible. The problem is laziness or a lack of priority. And so I would just tenderly and, and sincerely ask you to study this. You know, maybe my handout will be a, a jumping off point for you to study, or maybe you'll study in some other manner. But study the Word. You come to your own conviction. An opinion is what you think without the Bible. I wouldn't cross the street for your opinion versus my opinion. But a conviction is what I believe and I would die for from the Bible. I would die. I would die. So as not to deny that Jesus Christ is virgin-born, man-God, only Savior of the world, risen from the dead. If someone put a gun to my head and said deny that, I would say pull the trigger. But I wouldn't cross the street for my opinions. So be Christians of conviction, which means be Christians of the Bible. Every day. I need to exercise. I want to lose some weight. It won't happen by thinking about it. It won't happen about saying, yeah, it's a good idea. It'll come about by getting out with my dog, 70-pound standard poodle, and walking in the heat. And the first day I do that, I might go, uh, I don't know, a thousand yards, and I'm huffing and puffing and sweating. But the next day I get out, maybe I'll go 1,100 yards. I build my stamina with time. That's how it is with scriptural study. If you're not studying the scriptures for yourself, tomorrow morning, start with five minutes. Set a timer on your iPhone for five minutes and just start in a book of the Bible. I would suggest a New Testament book. Ephesians would be a great one since you're studying it with Brian. But read scripture for five minutes. And when something hits you, write it down in a book, a, a, note, a notebook. When you have a question, write it down in your notebook. The next day, five minutes. Five days of five minutes. Then five days of ten minutes. You're building your stamina. The sad thing will be when the Christian stands before Christ and says, I never got around to your word, Lord. I trusted you, and graciously you saved me, but I didn't care to read the love letter you left for me, so I really was never... I was 30 years a Christian, but really I was one year a Christian in experience multiplied by 30. 
there's some teachers in America have 30 years of teaching, but really they have one year of teaching. They've replicated for 30 years. They stopped growing as teachers. All right, enough for me. Yes. I was just thinking about what you said about Christians. I have friends who are from different denominations, and basically more Roman Catholics, because having gone to Roman Catholic school as an Indian child, and now that I'm back in a relationship with them, you know, connected with them, I had opportunity to WhatsApp them about my belief and my God. And I noticed the little bit of um, sort of shy away from me because I keep saying that is how I believe now, you know, since I was walking and learning a little more, you trying to get myself organized just in the event that he calls me. I better be ready. That's yeah. I, I, I'm trying to ask the Holy Spirit to help me how to get through to my friends who are very close to me that will believe what I believe now. And then sometimes uh, my thought comes to me, I say, hey, we all go to the same hilltop, but some of us are walking up, some of us are riding the bicycle around the turning road, or somebody's flying there, being parachuted down. But do you believe that? I mean, the fact that we're all walking towards God. You know? I don't believe that. Um, we live in a postmodern time that people hate God. They deny his existence. Uh, Islam uh, hates the God. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm talking about the Christians, well, those who believe in Jesus. And yet, like the Roman Catholic, they talk of, don't talk of born again. Because when I first came, and the children came to things, and they said, Mommy, are you born again? I said, what? I did not know born again. Yeah. This is a really important question. Um, I have lots of Roman Catholic friends that I respect, and they're my friends. But we disagree. We're, we disagree on fundamental things. We have a different Jesus. The Roman Catholic Church is a different Jesus. He's re-crucified every Mass. My Jesus was crucified once for all time. He has a co-redemptrix in the Catholic Church, his mother. He can't save us without his mother helping. That's not my Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me, not by me and my mother. My Jesus hears my prayers. The Roman Catholics' Jesus, Mary hears their prayers unless it's a biggie. If it's a biggie, then Jesus will listen to your prayers. So we have a different Jesus, and I can go on. We have a different communion. We have a different Bible. We have a different um, priesthood. We have so many differences. Now, I don't say that because I don't love Roman Catholics. I say that because they need Christ. They need Christ. If, if someone, I had a family of five Italian people, as it turned out, come to me in my study at a former church, and the teenager girl was in our youth group. She liked our youth group, and so she brought her family, her dad and mom and her two siblings. I, I, I sat down, and he goes, yes, how can I help you? And the, and the teenager said, I want you to tell us about God and this church, the Roman Catholics. So where do you start? You start with um, the Protestant Reformation with Luther was a protest against the Roman Catholic Church getting to the place of elevating church tradition higher than the Bible. That's where I started. 
And that's, I didn't have to go into all of it. I just said, we don't believe that any church's tradition has more authority than the Bible. So we look to see what the Bible says about how you get right with God. We don't consider the church and what it says. I say the other thing I said is that we have a 1 John 5, no so salvation. The Catholic Church has a hope so salvation. If you ask a Roman Catholic, even a devout Roman Catholic, are you going to go to heaven, you will get the same answer. I hope so. And that's because they've been taught that they have to merit it through the seven sacraments and piety, personal piety. But the question becomes, how do you know when you've done enough? And you don't. So the, the safety valve in their system is purgatory. If the Roman Catholic Church did not have purgatory, it would not be sustainable. Because the honest Roman Catholic, the sincere Roman Catholic, knows they, they have sin and that God is holy. And they don't know when they've done enough penance or gone to enough confessionals or given enough to the church to know if they're really okay. And so it's bondage. It's bondage. So to answer your question, I would start with the difference between authority in the two churches. The Protestant church says the scriptures are the authority. The Roman Catholic church says tradition is as, as important or even in some cases more important than, um, than the Bible. Have you, some of the declarations of the current pope, uh, you should really Google what Pope Francis is saying uh, if you haven't been hearing. Uh, things like um, that Roman Catholic youth can take 10 years off purgatory if they follow his tweets to do with the Roman Catholic World Day. I'm not joking. That's what he has said. One of the things I tell my friend is, I believe in Jesus dying for me for my sins. And the fact that I believe that um, is Yes. The other thing I tell them is I don't need the BTC card or anything to talk to my God. Good. I talk to you directly. I don't need the email because before I was a hell Mary girl too. Right. I came out of the convent school. But now I don't like I said she's a, a human being who who was given a task of carrying the baby Jesus. Yes, and she and she asked for salvation. She was not sinless and she was not herself immaculately conceived as they teach. But let's let's not you know just stay there. That's another time maybe. But to wrap it up, I would say three circles of the way I witness Roman Catholics: a W circle for good works, a C plus W circle for Christ plus good works, and a C only circle for Christ alone. And I just say, which circle would you find yourself in? And Roman Catholics always point to the center circle: Christ plus works. And then I say, well, that's interesting because Jesus' last word from the cross, John nineteen thirty, is it is finished. It was an accounting term. It meant paid in full. It meant that Jesus said we could, we did not need to add anything to what he has done, nor should we try. It's done. And then I say, if I was wealthy and you needed a car and I went to uh, a local car dealership and bought a Cadillac Escalade, by the way, as I'm giving this presentation to that Italian family, <laughs> the father looks at me and goes, we drive a Cadillac Escalade. <laughs> like it just blew him away that I would pick that illustration, right? I said, but if I bought you this Escalade, free and clear, title, keys, insurance, this is for you enjoying good health. If you went into your wallet, wait, wait a minute. 
here's 20 bucks to help pay for it. It would be an insult to the giver. And so when we say, I'm going to add this or that by way of what I can do to what Jesus has already completely done, it's an insult to God. So then I call them to the Christ-only circle, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one will boast. Heaven is a gated community. It's God's home. And not everybody just wanders in there because they had a pulse. It's a gated community. It's his home. He says, nobody's going to strut around heaven. How'd you get here? I had perfect attendance in Sunday school at Calvary Bible. I receive it as a gift. Ground is level at the foot of the cross. But I think that we ha- in love, we have to be honest. They have a different Christ, a different Bible, a different communion, a different priesthood. And I could go further. So we're not the same. Does the church It is my position, but the pastors share it. But I mean, so does is that the church's position? I would say yes. I would say yes. I'm looking at the DNA. I guess I can say a book of poems from every Calvin. Uh, person would know this is what we believe. I mean, if anyone opens your book, know why it's coming. The cost of Bible is different from the church we came out of. Yes. So we, you know, I was thought that this is why we were here because of eternal security to believers. And the preaching in Thomas is one of the things. And we were up at Bible, we do it, and that's that also. So I don't think everybody will there know exactly. Yes, I think that's right. I think that putting it into a booklet form would be a good thing to do. So we'll work on that. Hi. I I don't think it's something to get, as Christians, to get hung up about, about, you know, I think um, there's many things, the subjects in the Bible that we don't fully understand. Right. But um, I think that you don't have to get so many, you know, I really don't understand this election thing. Yeah, I think that's right, Molly, that keep the main thing the main thing, which is the cross and the empty tomb. The gospel is Christ died for sins and arose. That is the main thing. And uh, you can believe that whether you are an Arminian or a Calvinist. But yes, absolutely. Someone else? Yeah. But in limiting yourself and not me, it means that you're an ineffective vessel for To limit yourself in... The way you suggested. Just because the reality is... Yeah, there are people sitting in the pew that aren't saved every Sunday. They may believe because the concept of being a blessed is a difficult concept to grapple with. But if you just believe, um. But I'm struggling to try and verbalize it. 
Take your time. The position you stated that just accepting it. No. Okay. Well, that that's. Uh, no, I mean, every to formulate it is not right. Okay, we're in process. Um, I hope I'm more like Jesus than I was yesterday, but not as much as I will be tomorrow. I'm in process. But frankly, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. And I'm called to servant leadership in the scriptures where I have convictions, where I have studied the Word of God for 40 years, and I believe I know what it says. And so I don't get up on this or any other issue and say, oh, I'm really not sure. My, my struggle really is that some people um, yet they may still not fall in the of the elect. If they believe and are genuinely saved, they are elect. The Bible says even the demons believe and tremble, so there's logic in them believing fleshly and haven't really I think the illustration that you made too with the snake is that you can get in a limo, you know what I mean? But what does what does that mean? You can be reach the restaurant, what does that mean? No, but I think that illustration is for Christians all along the way. Yeah. They believe they are. Well what what I was trying to illustrate is uh, when someone says I trust Christ, you have to ask for what? And in my illustration, what, what I wanted to give the people that were homeless was a fine steak dinner. Now, the limo ride was nice, and they needed it, but that wasn't the primary thrust of my gift. There are some people who are trusting Jesus for good health. In other words, they believe he came to be a doctor, not a sin sacrifice. Some people trust Jesus for prosperity. They believe he came to be a banker, not a sin sacrifice. See what I mean? Uh, some people believe that Jesus came to be um, an emancipator politically. Judas Iscariot believed that. So they believe that Jesus came to be a warrior, not a sin sacrifice. So, Margot, I'll say this. I, I cannot elect anybody, neither can any of us. And I don't know who's elect. People don't walk around with an E on their forehead. But I share my faith everywhere to everybody and even if they don't accept Christ when I share my faith, I don't write them off as being non-elect. If I go to their funeral and they never confess Christ as Lord and Savior, then I could say possibly they weren't elect. So Satan would love it if we go through these things and just wind up at the position, either the extreme position, don't evangelize, God's got it looked after, or that I can only evangelize people with an E on their foreheads. You, yeah, you wouldn't need to. Well, right, irresistible grace. That's right. Now that's a hyper-Calvinistic position, which I don't hold. I don't. I don't. You've seen since I've been here. I mean, evangelism is my thing, so I don't hold that. I'm going to tell an illustration in, in, in morning service. I hope to stay for church. That it's uh, the people who God used to evangelize a whole province of India were Calvinists. They were Presbyterians. And so you can't look at um, a person with a Calvinistic um, conviction and say, well, they, they just don't do evangelism. Like I told you last time, and i got to go, what I told you last time is I fish in my parents' pond stuck with bass because I know they're in there and they're hungry. 
and I, and I catch a fish every time I cast, and I see election that way, I know there are elect people all around me every day. So I just cast. I know somebody's going to trust Christ. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I truly love being with you, and I truly thank you for your time and attention. And uh, we'll get it sorted out when we see Christ face to face. We'll get it sorted out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is truth. Sanctify us with your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 See you in the service, I hope.